we are looking at this passage, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 18, really, looking at some of the names there in verse 18 of Mark chapter 3. And you should hopefully have an outline that says, Grace for Outsiders. Every day he knew that he was not like everyone else. We are not told when, but at some point in his life, he found that he had contracted a terrible disease. This disease had left his body completely covered in festering sores. But the pain this man felt was not only physical, it was also emotional. He felt excluded from the people around him. No one wanted to go near him, because people were afraid of catching his disease. And the Lord declared him an outsider. He was unclean. He was forbidden to even attend the place of worship. And this man had given up all that he had in his life of ever changing. For him, this had become normal. He never thought he would ever change. But then he heard that a man, a man called Jesus, had arrived in his town and that he could turn his desperate life around. And so with that little ray of hope, the Bible tells us that this man came to Jesus. He knelt before Jesus and he pleaded with Jesus. He cried out to Jesus and said, if you will, you can make me clean. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus saw this man, he was cut to the stomach. He felt deep pity, deep compassion for this man. And though the Lord forbade it, Jesus, without hesitation, did the unthinkable. He stretched out his hand and he touched this man. And immediately, power flowed out of Christ. Healing power. It made this man well again. But you see, what Jesus did that day was more than just heal the man. Jesus gave this man his life back. Now this man could hug his wife. Now this man could sit down with the kids and play. Now this man could go into the synagogue and worship with everyone else. Health was restored to him, but above all, this man who had lived all his life as an outsider, now had come in the inside. He had been made clean in every dimension. And we looked at this amazing story of this man in Mark chapter 1, verse 40 to verse 45. The healing of that leper we looked at is part of a wider theme in Mark. And it teaches us that Jesus has come for outsiders. Jesus has come to reach out to people on the margins of society. People we don't want anything to do with. Jesus has come to reach out to them. To bring them into a relationship with God, their vertical relationship, but also to bring these outsiders into a relationship with one another. Respairing the horizontal, the vertical leads to a repairing of the horizontal relationships. And we see this wonderful truth in Mark wherever we look. We saw it with the leper, we saw it with the paralytic, and actually in this passage we are looking at today, we see it through very different eyes. We see it in how Jesus is choosing the 12 disciples. Let's, look, let's read verse 16 to verse 19. 
he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, that is Levi, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Tadeus, and Simon the Cananean. And he goes on to say, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This morning, as you look at that list of the twelve, I just want to pick two names from there that have been chosen by Jesus that illustrate for us God's grace to outsiders. I want us to look at these two names to learn what God's grace for outsider means for all of us here. As individuals, for you, as a church, what it means for us. And the first outsider here on this list is a man called Simon the Cananean. He's there in verse 8. He's the last name in verse 8. After James, the son of Alphaeus and Tadeus, we are then said, he then says, and Simon the Cananean. Why is he called Simon the Cananean? Well, it does not refer to the land of Canaan. I used to think that, actually. And it does not refer to the village of Canaan, either. It actually comes from an original word called Cana. Q-A-N-N-A. It means to be zealous. And actually, this is why when you read Luke 6, verse 15, you look at the list of disciples there in Luke 6, 15, and Acts 1, verse 13. Simon is not called there Simon the Cananean. He's called Simon the Zealot. You see, at this time, when someone is called a zealot, it is more than a description of a political, more than a description of a trait about him. He's not saying he's zealous. He is, but he's trying to get at something different. When the name zealot was used, it was more like a political surname. It's like saying Boris, the Tory, or Ming, the liberal. It's describing their political standpoint. Zealots were very well known at this time. And it is telling us, therefore, that Simon the Zealot, at one time, was a member of a feared and well-known political mafia group called the Zealots. The Jewish historian uh, writing at this time actually tells us there are four leading groups, liberation movements, we might say, at this time. We've met, the, we've met the Pharisees, who we know, the Sadducees, and a group that's not mentioned in the Bible called the Essenes. And then there was this fourth group called the Zealots. And the Zealots basically were, as the name might indicate, very politically zealous. They wanted to read Israel of all Roman influence by any means necessary. The Zealots carry out murderous attacks against Romans and against any Jews who sympathize with Rome. It all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Because the Zealots are a bit like ISIS today or other terrorist group. And just after Jesus was born, we are told by historian that the zealots led by Judas of Galilee opposed the Jewish puppet king Herod who was installed by Rome. They caused a revolt. In fact, they became so violent that they created a new class within their ranks of a group called Sicari, which means daggermen. And these men patrolled cities with daggers hidden under their sleeves. 
and they assassinated Roman leaders and Jews they considered sellouts. The zealots sincerely believed they are pleasing God, even as their victims' blood dripped from their dagger blades. This is the word of Simon the Zealot. The man Jesus has chosen has been living and breathing hate for others. And most likely he has killed a few people himself. But God loves Simon and has been chasing him. And the wonder of the gospel is that somewhere along the line, Simon the Zealot has met Jesus of Nazareth. We are not told in the Bible how it has happened. But Jesus has reached out to him. Simon, the unlikely of all candidates, has become a follower of Jesus. Not just a follower of Jesus. Here in Mark 3, verse 18, his name is chosen as one of the twelve to form part this amazing new community of Jesus. And therefore we have that list. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, they all sound very ordinary, perhaps no Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. And then when people read the list, Simon, the Cananean, the violent revolutionary, is part of this list. You see, when we hear the story of Simon the Zealot, it's so different from our lives. It is difficult for many of us to relate to it because our life seems less simple than, frankly, <laughs> what would be to consider today terrorists living in Belmash. That's where Simon the Zealot probably would be. Our life seems so different from such people we regard as very evil. You see, in our society, we have a hierarchy of sin. Okay? On the top, people put rapists, pedophiles, Murderers, terrorists, and perhaps President Putin or Assad. And we put on the top, you know, the Russian spies. You know, those people, of course, you know, terrible things. And we put on top as well people we disagree with. That's how society is. The sinner nowadays, you know, if you follow the news, it's just somebody you disagree with. And they're so evil, and you put them there. So we put those people on the top. That's our hierarchy. At the bottom, we put ourselves, right? We put ourselves. The, 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 people may sleep around. They may gossip. They may slander. They may watch pornography. But there's a difference between that people at the top and people at the bottom. Is that these sins at the bottom, even if they may be despicable, they're actually acceptable to society. And so we look at these two hierarchies. We say, oh, they are sinners. Okay, we are all right. And so most people think they are okay. And this is true even for many who profess faith in Jesus. Many people think their sins are less than other people's sins. It is true for you who profess Christ. It's true for me. And that's why we need the Bible to remind us that I'm just as much as a sinner as Simon the Zealot. The Bible says everyone is a sinner. You are born a sinner. You are born a rebel before God. You come into this world bearing arms. No matter what your opinion of yourself is, 
And if you are here this, early this morning when you started off, or you were here yesterday, you remember those words from Psalm 14, verse 2 to 3, which bears reading again. Let's read them again. The Lord, Psalm 14, verse 2 to 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And if you are here yesterday, I said that when you study those verses, first three verses, you see so many fascinating things about sin there. You see that sin corrupts our thinking. We don't think right about God. We say there is no God, some of us. Or we live like that. That's how we think. We see that sin corrupts how we relate to one another. It also corrupts the deeds that we do. And we also see that the sin is actually corporate. Did you notice that in verse 3, they have all turned aside. In Psalm 14, verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. And you can go on to learn about sin from that. In fact, Shannok wrote just 200 plus pages on Psalm 14, verse 1. You can just meditate on that. What that psalm is telling us and what we need to realize our Bible tells us is this. Imagine God is standing up, right? And he draws a ring around himself. All of us are outside that ring by default. And God is standing in the ring only by himself. You are outside with Donald Trump. You are outside with ISIS. You are outside with Simon the Zealot. You are outside with Mrs. May. You are outside with, uh, with, with the Woolwich boys, the gang that's terrorizing Woolwich. You are outside with them. But it is worse than that. You have no hope of entering the inner circle where God is standing. Because those very sins, even one keeps you outside this circle. You are an outsider by default. And that is why when I looked at this name, Simon the Cananean, I'm like, praise the Lord. Because you see, Jesus here is choosing Simon. It's such great news for you. When you read his name, you should bow down and worship at the Lord. Because what Jesus is doing here is a picture of what Jesus has come to do for you. You cannot come from the outside to enter that inner circle. So what Jesus has done is, you see, he's treaded places with you. He has willingly become an outsider. He has come outside the circle to bring you inside. And this is what the Bible tells us at Christmas, isn't it, when we read, Jesus, God became a man in Jesus. He became an outsider in Jesus. He took on human flesh, lived a perfect life as an outsider, and was betrayed by one of the twelve disciples into the hands of the authorities. But it did not end there. After his betrayal, Jesus was barred from Jewish society. Just like Simon the Zealot and Matthew and other outsiders. But his barring from society was worse. He was then nailed to the cross. When you are nailed to the cross, you are declared persona non grata, isn't it? So something like that. You are a nobody now. Only the cursed in Jewish society dies on the cross. The worst of the nobodies. And that's what Jesus did. He did it to tread places with you. He came on the outside, took on your outsideness, we might say. And then through being an outsider, opened the way for you to enter that ring, to be with God now. 
And if you have surrendered to Jesus, if you surrender truly to Jesus, you can have life with God. You can be in the inside. Musaba, Hassan, Yusuf. I don't know if for some of you the name strikes any bells. But Musaba, Hassan, Yusuf grew up under the wings of one of the most deadly terror organizations in the world. His father was one of the leaders of Hamas. Musaba, from a young age, was born armed with the Koran and the gang. From that young age, he had been taught to hate Israel. But all that began to change in 1991. You see, Musaba went for a stroll, walking with his friends, and he, as he was walking down the streets of Jerusalem, outside Damascus Gate, he met a Christian from the UK in Jerusalem. And this Christian invited him in to come in for a Bible study. So he went in, like on a Thursday, and Yusuf soon, soon found himself reading the New Testament. And as he was reading it, he came to the Gospel of Matthew. And he started reading Jesus' sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. And it hit Musaba like a, like a thunderbolt. And as he read Jesus' love for his enemies and, and how you are to live at peace. And, how Jesus, and he read his story about Jesus came to die for sinners. Musaba couldn't put it down. He immediately fell in love with Jesus. And over the next year, he came to surrender his life to Christ. And now, at that point, instead of planning terror attacks for his dad, he had been groomed as what we call the Green Prince. The Green Prince of Amos now began to prevent them. He started working with Israel's security agency, the Shin Bet. His intelligence from within Hamas prevented many terrorist attacks. And around 2005, Yusuf, now growing in his faith in Christ, was baptized secretly in Tel Aviv. Because, of course, his life was in danger. And then, by God's grace, by God's providence, he, uh, by God's working, he was later relocated to the U.S., where he still attends a thriving evangelical church. He's still serving the Lord. He's at the age of 40 now. And you can read more about this extraordinary story of Musaba Hassan Yusuf in his amazing book, The Son of Amas. You see, what Jesus has done for Yusuf and Simon the Zealot, two political evolutionaries, he can do for you. He's taken them from the outside and brought them in the inside. And the question for you is this. Will you surrender to him, truly surrender to him, or will you continue on the outside? You see, to remain on the outside is to remain with all sinners, isn't it? And it looks like freedom. But the Bible says refusing to surrender to Jesus only ends in everlasting punishment. But if you surrender to Jesus... God will forgive you your sins and welcome you in. As he welcomed Simon the Zealot, as he welcomed Musaba Hassan Yusuf, and as he welcomed another man in this story, Levi Matthew. Read verse 18 again there. The second outsider here, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and then we come to a name, Matthew. 
We think, who is this guy? But actually, the more we think about it, the more we realize we have already met him. Because his name is Levi. He's the same man who wrote Matthew the book. He's the same man we met in Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 14. Just look, flick over the Bible, the page before. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 14. We read his story and we did a sermon on this. Let's just read how he came to know Jesus. He went out again, Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 14. He went out again beside the sea. Another crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And he passed by, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Of all people, I think, humanly speaking, Jesus has put on this list. There is no doubt by anyone who read this list, the worst person on that list is not Judas. The worst person on that list to many people would be Matthew Levi. The reason I say this is because Matthew is described as a tax collector. Now, I have previously mentioned that tax collectors are despised by Jews at this time. But it is hard for me here to communicate that to you. It is hard for us to even understand the depth of their crime. You see, ancient tax collectors have a far darker stigma than our HMRC officials. You see, at the time of Jesus, Rome, as I said, is ruling over Israel. What does that mean? Well, it is equivalent to the EU fighting and conquering the UK and then continuing to oppress us. So imagine that you work hard or dead and barely make enough to live on. And then all your money goes to fund Brussels to oppress you. Your taxes goes to build beautiful palaces for Mr. Juncker and Mr. Task around London. Nice palatial mansions with their pictures on the wall. You pay the salary of the abusive EU soldiers who just slap your wife or your husband and kick your kids because they simply feel like it. You are a EU colony now. And Matthew, the kid you used to play football with at Gravel Hill, has betrayed his country by working for this new tyrannical EU superstate. They have hired Matthew to collect your money, but he's not just working for them. He's the one physically coming to take it out of your pocket and running off on a plane somewhere, getting to Brussels, and handing it to Mr. Juncker. And not only is your former BFF uh, helping to fund this European empire that is oppressing you, he's charging you more to line up his own pockets. So when you walk past Nando's, you see Matthew there ordering ten full platters and laughing off with his new friends while you watch your kids starve. Matthew is the visible extension of everything you hate and everything that hates you. Because Matthew is a tax collector. You see, to be Matthew, you must have a heart of stone. You must be heartless to swim in the same society of people you are betraying every day. People get killed for that. 
Matthew is not just a social outcast. He's also a religious outcast. He's not allowed to enter the synagogue. He can't give evidence before Jewish law courts. He's a betrayer. He's treated like a drunkard and prostitutes. So his only friends are fellow tax collectors and sinners. That's why when Jesus initially calls him, who does he invite? His, his mates. Who are his mates? Sinners and drunkards. Like them, he has been living a disgusting lifestyle. When we think of Matthew, we're thinking of an outsider here to the nth degree, in every sense of the word. That was the world of Levi Matthew. Until Jesus met him in Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 14, which we just read. Jesus reached out to him, and he has been following Jesus ever since. And now he's part of the twelve. I remember the first day I joined government as a young economist. I felt so out of place. My first meeting, I think I've talked about it, my boss called me in, first day on the job, and I found myself sitting on a round over a wonderful table. Everybody was aged the age of 60. I could live with that. The good wise people I always grew up in the village talking to the elderly folk. That's wonderful. I enjoy them. But they were all white. And I was there as a 21-year-old coming out of uni. Culturally so removed from their world. They were using words and double-barreled names I couldn't even understand. My boss afterwards told me that, because I felt like I really didn't belong there. And my boss afterwards came and reassured me, Chola, you know, you looked a bit uncomfortable there. I said, yeah. Because you are here now. You have, you know, you passed and you are here. You, you passed the civil selection board. And this is your job. You belong here. You know that, don't you? And then I, I found that so helpful to, that, to be reassured that actually, even though I felt like I was an outsider, I really did belong there. And I know some of you perhaps have experienced this outside feeling in different areas of your life. At work, perhaps, when you get there and everybody looks smart, or in class and everybody just seems to know what they're doing. This happens when you even move into a new neighborhood. Everybody seems to get along with each other, but you are now an outsider, aren't you? And you feel that, actually, for some of us who have left other places to come and live in this country, you immediately feel that. You're trying to learn the culture. You come in as an outsider. And, and even when you come to church sometimes, if people have got good cliques here and there, they get on one another, they write each other's good Christmas cards and so forth. When you come into the church, you can feel like an outsider. And I imagine that is how Levi Matthew must have felt at some point. Yes, Jesus called him. But he's looking at still saying, Do I, am I really supposed to be here? Is this my world? Hanging out with these guys. And can you imagine how he now feels when Jesus, after knowing him, attending his party, and now saying, you know what? I, I haven't just called you to follow me. You are now one of the twelve. Not quite the top guys, but they are one of the twelve. I really want you here. You really belong here. And you're one of the twelve. This, this, you are part of a new community. I'll turn you into an apostle for me. You'll be my messenger. You'll take the, the news to the world. I think when Matthew realizes that, he, he must be filled with tears, just like Peter felt when, when Christ mentioned his name. He must feel he really belongs there now. And he must be excited. But how does Simon the Zealot feel? 
When is Simon the Zealot? When, he, when he's there, he's been called. And he turns to his left. And he sees Matthew. I think Simon the Zealot is probably thinking, Matthew? I imagine he's saying, a brother in the Lord? Rabbi Yeshua, look, are you playing a joke on us here? And I imagine our gentle Savior, I'm just imagining, turning to Simon the Zealot, saying, look, Simon, I know you spend your whole life hunting down Romans, hunting down traitors like Matthew. But Simon, my grace is a bottomless ocean. It is enough for you and Levi. He is your brother now in the Lord. Of course, I'm imagining, but it is clear that Jesus has chosen these two people here to boldly declare that regardless of our background, we are no longer outsiders. We are all one now in Christ. By Jesus choosing these extreme people who would normally hate one another, bringing them in together, Jesus is giving us a vision of what heaven will be like. What the new heavens and the new earth will be like. Because the kingdom of God is building is a kingdom that brings what? University. Unity out of diversity. Jesus has a heart for outsiders. And as I looked at this, it is a challenge for all true followers of Jesus. Do you have a heart for outsiders? Do you have a heart for followers of Jesus who are different from you? Do you regularly invite brothers and sisters from a different social and ethnic background in your home for a meal? Not because the pastor asked you, do you pursue them because Christ has a heart for people who are different from you? Are you one to cross boundaries across income? Across social background? How ethnically diverse are your Christian friendships? Are all your friends you're white? Are all your friends just white? If you're black, are all your friends just black? If you're young, are all your friends just young? Are you crossing the boundary of age among believers? If you're old, is all you like spending with other older people swapping stories about grandchildren? Or are you reaching out to grandchildren here to spend time with them? I think these are difficult and painful questions we often avoid. I have to ask myself this all the time. Do I have a heart for people who the only thing I share is Jesus? And I have to ask this question, not only of us as individuals, but as a church. What sort of church are we really? I was telling the Lord this week as I was talking to him about this passage, I was saying to him, Lord, anyone can build a church 
that is nothing more than a cozy support group. Anyone can build a church of people we are comfortable with. Anyone can build a church of people who have never offended us. Anyone can build a church of people who swap common family stories. Anyone can build, even I told the Lord, Lucifer can build a church where people only relate to one another in the church on the surface, but hardly visit each other's homes. I said, Lord, I don't want you to build that church here. I said, Lord, build a church. Build a church among us where smelly drunkards are welcomed into the loving arms of Jesus. Where these people on the fringe are invited into our homes. Lord, build a church where those who struggle with speaking English are truly loved and introduced to a Jesus who transcends every language. See, Lord, I told the Lord, I said, Lord, many people profess faith in Jesus, and even me, I am willing to put up with people who are very different and who even offend me. But am I willing to pursue them? Because grace is no tolerance. Grace pursues. To Jesus, grace is not just a buzzword. The grace of Jesus pursues, and it delights in reaching people who are outside our circles of comfort. That is Jesus, isn't it? Amazing grace. Grace is who Jesus is. Grace is what flows through the veins of Jesus. His heart beats for Simon. His heart beats for Matthew. His heart, as we'll see next week, well, two weeks from now, even beats for Judas Iscariot. His heart beats grace. And he wants every heart filled with his Holy Spirit to beat the same grace. So I told the Lord, only you can build such a church. Only you can. Only you can. Only you can make me a Christian that has a heart for the outsiders. Only you can create opportunities for me to get to know them. To do things I'm not comfortable doing. And so I want to encourage you this morning to come before Jesus. You truly know him. Ask him for his grace. Confess your fears, your failures. Your Savior knows. I don't think it was easy for Jesus to stretch out his hand to Matthew. He must have penned him as well. He was Jewish after all. He would have had family members, as we'll see. No wonder his family members later called Jesus. He was out of his mind. It was painful for him. Slander. But he did. Because he came to call those on the outside. Well, may the Lord help us to love one another and reach out to those on the outside. Amen.